Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, and welcome to the CapEx podcast hosted by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. When we think of the fight for gender equality, more often than not, it's framed in terms of the unequal, often violent treatment suffered by women and girls. In many, many places, that's very much still the case. But here in the West, the battle of the sexes is not as clear cut as it once was. In the US in particular, the social and economic life of men has been turned upside down in recent decades, with men losing ground in the labour market, falling behind in education and increasingly missing out on family life. For black men in particular, these problems are even more acute. In his new book, Of Boys and Men, the writer and policy expert Richard Reeves takes on these issues head on and suggests some perhaps surprising solutions. Richard is a former journalist, political advisor and think tanker originally from the UK, but now a naturalised US citizen working at the Brookings Institution, where he's a senior fellow and directs the Future of the Middle Class Initiative. I began our interview by asking about his experience as the dad of three boys and how it inspired him to write his latest book. So, Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the, the CapEx podcast. Uh, you've dedicated your latest book of boys and men to your own three sons. So I guess this was a fairly personal uh, as well as a scholarly uh, enterprise for you. Yeah, it was it was a mixture of the two, frankly, because I've raised three boys, both in the UK and and in the US, to, to adulthood now, and the conversations I'll be having with them, like in in the car or over over the dinner table, about what what is like growing up as a young man today, definitely influenced my work. I have this theory that all scholarship is at least a little bit autobiographical. It's just a question of whether you know know it or not. But the, the real impetus then came from when I'd be at you know, go to the Brookings Institution where I work, where I'd be seeing a number of trends, a number of studies that really troubled me. I kept stumbling over data for how boys are doing in education, how men are doing in the labor market, particularly how young men are doing at college and so on, that, that really startled me. I knew some of the trends, but I didn't know how deep they went. And the colleagues were surprised too. And I think at the end, it was a combination of both those personal conversations and personal experience and of the professional sense of surprise I kept having that led me led me to to think there there was something to be said here yeah there's a great quote in your book as well um there's loads of great quotes and stats actually it's uh, <laughs> yes it's full ones. of them yeah um <laughs> it's one that uh, I noted down was Bertrand Russell saying the mark of a civilized man is the ability to weep over a column of numbers 
Mm. Um, you know, there's there's plenty to weep over here. But I mean, is it the case that this has been somewhat shunted off to one side or ignored or and we'll come on later to the kind of political aspects of it. But it feels mm. like some of these debates are expressed in rather kind of crude terms at the moment. Um, and the other thing that struck me is that, mm. like you say, there's just very little data. So in a way, you're kind of pioneering a bit in, in this area. Yeah, in some cases, there's a few things. So sometimes the, the the big picture here, I think, is that the it's only in very, very recent history that it made sense to talk about gender inequality as running both ways. So there are now gender inequalities where it's boys and men who are a disadvantage. We've already briefly mentioned education. We can get into that. There are certain certainly aspects of health, mental health, suicide, et cetera, some aspects of the labor market. Uh, and definitely in family life, where if you're worried about gender inequality, you're, you're worried about boys and men. But that's happened astonishingly fast. You don't have to go back very far for it to be a reasonable proposition that caring about gender equality means caring about women and girls, period. Because on almost every measure, that was really where the action was. So just updating our priors, if you like, to to fit with this new world is hard. That does mean in some cases we don't collect data. So in the US, for example, where I am now, we don't ask states to report their high school graduation rates by sex. We do by race, we do by English as second language, we do by foster status, but we don't by sex. And that's just because no one thought there was anything there to worry about. Uh, whereas in fact, there's quite a big gap in high school graduation uh, disfavoring boys. But I suppose the more common problem is not that the data isn't there, it's that it's not particularly investigated from this angle. So sometimes you'll find the data. I just found this on college enrollment, for example, but it's on table three of appendix A2 of whatever. Um, so it's there, but it's not highlighted. And again, I think it's partly just because the psychology of this is, is still a little bit stuck. But also, if we're going to be honest about it, there are a bunch of institutions whose job it is to highlight gender inequalities when they run against women and girls, and they do a great job of it. And there are many gender inequalities, as you just said, that do run and still run against women and girls. So I, ha I happen to be married to someone who's trying to raise money right now uh, for a startup business. And so I know very personally that only 2% of venture capital money goes to female founders. And so it's not like there isn't still stuff to do, but we have a whole bunch of organizations, institutions whose job it is to lift up those gender inequalities and great for that's good but not but almost whose job is it to wake up in the morning and and focus on and draw attention to the gender inequalities the other way and the answer is really nobody yeah it's it's worth saying i think as well that your book is is really very much focused on the united states um that's not to say britain doesn't say share some of those problems but I mean, were you conscious of this sort of, you know, if you work, mm. went somewhere like India or China, where they're still pretty patriarchal societies, mm. it's not it's not necessarily a, a global phenomenon. Yeah, that that's right. Uh, so there's two things here. One is I've, I've been really interested and somewhat surprised, honestly, just how much this has struck a chord in the UK as much as in the US. And I'm actually doing going to be doing more in the UK, partly as a result of that and partly, of course, where I come from. Generally, the trends are similar across developed economies, but there's two things. One is we we couldn't have had this conversation probably even 30 years ago, 40 years ago, even in the advanced economies. And we definitely wouldn't be having this conversation in other countries. So let's just be clear. The appetite for this argument is really in the advanced economies. In much of the world, it's still the case that 
we should be focusing almost exclusively on women and girls in terms of gender equality. And again, I think it's just really hard for people to get their head around. On the one hand, this has happened so fast that it's, it's, it's genuinely difficult to sort of change your mindset with the facts. But also, it's absolutely true that globally, there's a continued need to fight for women and girls. I mean, there's no, put it, let, put it this way, there is no Af Afghan publisher bidding on my book uh you know there's no market particularly for this for this and there's i'm i'm not getting much pickup in the middle east for these arguments right now and quite right too because that's st that's still a very very different world but but like the whole book that's a test of our ability to think two things at once or rather to think things are different in place a to place b or different <laughs> at time two than it was at time one uh and i'm so far i'm reasonably pleased with the fact that people are able to do that yeah, I mean, it's uh, I think it's the antithesis of the kind of Twitterified social landscape, social media landscape, where you think one thing and you think it very yeah. strongly. And that's how things work. And that's it. I know. I Well, I, it's worth sharing this. A colleague of mine just interviewed me. His name is Shadi Hamid. And he actually he uh, tweeted out something very funny. He, he said, I'm reading my colleague Richard Reeves's new book. I'm sorry to say that I'm on page two and have already found an error. And what he did was he highlighted the sentence where I said people can think two thoughts at once. Right. <laughs> exactly. But we, what actually, so I talked about the Bertrand Russell um, quote about numbers that will make you weep. And what are those numbers? What are we talking about here? Some of it's, you mentioned education, mm -hmm. workforce, earnings, but there's something and there's a kind of broader malaise that stems from all of that. So, so what is the problem with men that you identify? So you've hit on most of the domains that I'm um, really most interested in. So in education, what we see is a, a very wide and widening gender gap in education, pretty much across advanced economies. So if you look across OECD countries, the advanced economies, boys are 50, a bit more than 50% more likely to fail all three key subjects. In, pretty, in every OECD country, there are significantly more young women with a college degree than men, uh, which is a reversal of the situation even 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and so there is a big gender inequality. If you just look in the UK, for example, it's like 60% of college degrees going to women. When I was born in the late 60s, it was 30%. When I went to college in the late 80s, it was roughly parity. And so just in the space of my lifetime, we've essentially reversed that, that gender gap. And of course, that's a great news story in many ways, because it means what, what's happened is we've taken the breaks off the educational opportunities and aspirations of women and girls. But we do now see declining enrollment rates uh, for men. Uh, and real struggles in school and especially in the UK the, the class issue is huge here it's really white working class boys and men who are struggling the most in, in the UK but in the US it's, it, you really have to look at it through race as well so obviously black boys and men uh, in the in the uh, US are much bigger issue then as you mentioned we've seen this decline in labor force participation and so non-employment rates uh, among less educated men are close to one in three in the US, there are similar patterns across OECD countries, and a significant increase in rates of suicide, drug overdose, etc, so called deaths of despair. And those are roughly three times higher among men than among women from suicide, drug or alcohol related uh, deaths. And so just when it comes to matters of life and death, you see these quite big differences. And the last area where we see big change is in the number of fathers who are not actively engaged in their children's lives, so a big increase Again, a big increase in the number of kids born outside marriage and to single parents, which in and of itself is a mark of real progress because it's a sign that women are now economically more independent, which is a, a fantastic, arguably one of the 
I, I think I say it's the greatest liberation in human history that women have broken those chains of dependency. But it has now left many men and especially many fathers somewhat on the sidelines. And, and you combine all those things together. And I think that's where you start to see these things interacting with each other. So one of the arguments that's, that happens always with this kind of analysis, well, is it culture or is it economics? Well, ch massive changes in economic circumstances have cultural consequences. And so you can't separate the two. And, and I think we're seeing a combination of things happening all at once, which has left a number of men dislocated, disoriented, to some extent reeling from these changes. And what sort of timeline um, are we talking about? Because you mentioned towards the beginning of the book that there was a book in 2012 called The End of Men, which mm. talks about some of these problems. And the author, um, Hannah Rosen, she says, or quite optimistically, there's nothing like being trounced year after year to make you reconsider your options. But it strikes me from, from your book that that is not, if that is happening, it, well, it hasn't started happening yet, really. The last dec decade has not seen any progress on these issues, really. That's that's correct. And so, again, it's one of the reasons to be concerned is that it's not just that you see these these trends, but it's that it's that it's appear to be continuing. So you can easily imagine there are periods of adjustment uh, and so on. But around some of these educational and employment trends, the lines just continue to go in largely the wrong direction. Let's take the gender pay gap, for example. Uh, that's narrowing. And actually in the UK now, it's down to about 8%, which is really amazing. I mean, the progress on the gender pay gap in the UK has been really impressive um, and narrowing. But the gender inequality in education is widening the other way. And so it's important, I think, when we look at inequalities to look at them both now but then what's the trend? Is this an inequality that's going the right way or the wrong way? And so you do see, even since Hannah wrote that book, the educational inequalities have continued to widen. And some of the problems of boys and men have continued to worsen. So what's interesting is like what like what's going to change? Perhaps we'll get into some of the solutions, but how yeah, do we yeah. change some of those, some of those trajectories that that were identified in the book? And so I think if I'd looked at the trends since since then and said oh okay but but she's right things are getting a bit better then i don't think i would have felt as strongly motivated to write the book but yeah. if anything you see many of them getting worse yeah we will come on to some of your um, proposed solutions because the last part of your book is about um changes to for example education but and what underpins the inequality that you described the underperformance of boys in school compared to girls which then goes on into college, as you say, with girls much more likely to get to graduate from college than, than boys. Well, there's two ways into this. One is to is sort of policy wonky way, if you like, which is where I'm most comfortable as a policy wonk. And the other is more of a cultural or uh, a cultural issue. And I think at one point in the book, I say we need anthropologists, not economists. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was an attempt to say I do think that some of this is about quite a profound cultural change which has asked big questions of what it means to be successful as a man today that we're not sometimes not even asking let alone answering so that the wonky answer is that the education system in particular is structured in favor of girls and women uh, it always has been we just didn't notice before because under conditions of sexism girls were not encouraged to go on to college and do well <laughs> But actually, the the structure of the education system in a number of ways, one, just the, the, the nature of learning being more narrowly academic rather than, say, more vocational. 
Secondly, the, the teaching profession has become steadily more female. And so we're seeing they're very, very female environments. So that seems to matter to boys in terms of role models. And I suppose most provocatively, the education system is structured in a way to really reward certain skills at key points. Those skills being paying attention, looking to the future, turning your homework in, etc. We really reward those skills at around the ages of 15 to 17, 15 to 18 because that determines the subsequent trajectory. Well, that's where girls are just neurologically ahead of boys. For a neuroscientific perspective, girls' brains develop faster than boys. And it's one of those, these things where you talk to people and you say, look, here's the, here's the evidence. Here's, I've read all the neuroscience. And, and then all the, everyone goes, yeah, well, duh. So it's one of those findings that I call the well, duh finding. Everyone knows this. We don't structure our school we, we but we continue to structure education as if it wasn't true so here's this well duh fact about human nature that's not reflected in education policy so the result of taking the brakes off girls and women's educational aspirations and opportunities is to expose their natural advantages is one of the paradoxical consequences of the women's movement has been to expose the way in which the education system is actually structured against boys and men inadvertently of course it's not some plot that was hatched by feminists 100 years ago it's just the way it is. But now that we have realized it, I think we have a responsibility to try and address it and say, how do we make a more male-friendly education system? And again, that makes you sound crazy if you're still in a world where you think of gender inequality only running one way. Yeah, how conscious are you or were you when you're writing about these sorts of biological differences that you may be rubbing up against some of the kind of political and cultural orthodoxy of the moment in terms of these very contentious questions about gender and essentialism and, and those kinds of things i was conscious of it and in fact of of all the chapters that uh, are in the book that some people urge the the removal of the one where i identify some of these differences was the one but there were also some people saying you've really got to keep that because honestly it's such a polarized debate as you've just said that i struggled to find you know very many very many people who are just engaging in good faith with this certainly at the sort of policy and political level there are there are, are, are of course some some very good pieces of work being done carol hooven has a book on testosterone for example which is very good and influenced me but at the at, at the cultural level you're right and, and so i decided to keep it partly for that reason and i will say that as far as adults are concerned the extent that there are differences between the sexes there's lots of overlap between the distributions and each side's gotten trapped. So one side says it's all about biology and overstate biology. And the other side, which is crazy, and the other side uh, say, oh, there's no biology. Everything's socialized, which is also crazy. Mm. And so most people who are living in the, re in the actual world just go, yeah, we know there are differences, but not that big a deal. But where there's no controversy is about the timing of the development. Interestingly. So this, uh, this, this, evidence that boys just develop later than girls is not at all controversial how much the distributions overlap how consequential it is that's a whole different thing but nobody denies the difference in timing yeah. and so from an educational perspective i think that's safer ground to then start saying okay if that's true does that matter uh, rather than getting to the whole debate about male versus female brains which as i've said is sort of interesting but largely inconsequential except to the extent that it's important not to sound like you're a lunatic by denying any differences at all. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, there are too many people saying that. So I felt that I should at least offer something in that space.
It's a, I mean, it's a, it's basically that old nature versus nurture debate in a, in a different, a slightly different form, isn't it? And just it is. out in a kind of slightly academic sense, what, why is it that boys develop later? Well, one of the big reasons is that they hit puberty later. So puberty triggers a whole bunch of changes, the, uh, including the development of this thing, the, the prefrontal cortex, which is the bit sometimes called the CEO of your brain. It's the bit of your brain that says, do your chemistry homework, don't go out and party. Uh, it's the bit of your brain that says your how you do at school kind of does matter for your future. Um, so it's about future orientation, planfulness, deferral and gratification, and also the, the the ability to continue to pay attention to intrinsically boring tasks. And if there is any setting that rewards the ability to pay attention to intrinsically boring tasks, it is the education system. Uh, and, and it just develops a bit earlier in girls. Between a year and two years earlier, uh, it's triggered, as I said, triggered by puberty uh, is a large part of the reason. But um, the honest answer is I don't think we know for sure why. There is some discussion about why would it be for the evolutionary advantage for girls to develop that sooner and some speculation it's about fertility and the need for once once girls become fertile we're obviously thinking about you know the, the ancestral past now that it would be more useful for them to be able to think ahead a little bit but be a bit more planful whereas the boys could kind of maraud around for a bit longer we don't know but we know it's true hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code acast for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And another thing that really struck me which is kind of obvious once you express it but I hadn't really thought about it is that there's never been a kind of crisis of femininity but there is a crisis of, of masculinity and expressed in various ways by the sort of detractors of men as, as toxic masculinity but but also in the sense that um, male identity uh, is very I think the word uses it's very fragile um, yeah. and one of the ways that manifests itself that you discuss in this book is that um, women can basically make do increasingly or, or prefer to make do without men. Um, I mean, how much of a phenomenon do you think this is? I mean, are we seeing far fewer cohabiting couples now in the United States? I think your data does bear that out. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, well, I will. First thing I want to say is that obvious once you've said it, it's sort of the motto of much of the book is an attempt to take things that, oh, yeah, okay. There's yeah. obvious. It is. Now you say it. Uh, and we've talked about some of those already, I think. But, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's obvious to all anthropologists or anyone that studied human history that, that masculinity has always been to some extent fragile. And honestly, about 50% of the time in crisis, I deliberately yeah. don't use the word crisis, but Google crisis of masculinity and you'll pull up you know, big articles and essays from before Vietnam, after Vietnam, in the 50s, just after the Second World War, just before the Second World War, in the Depression, and so on. So you just go to whatever. And so this idea of a crisis of masculinity is like as old as time. And I think that's interesting. And I'll come back to why I think that's interesting. But this time around, even though I don't use the word crisis, this time around, there are actually a lot of actual hard facts about how men are struggling. So in 1958, when Arthur Schlesinger wrote his essay, Crisis of Masculinity, I looked at the labor market numbers and there was full employment, uh, rising wages, pretty much every father lived with their kids. And I'm like, well, okay, you might see a crisis of masculinity on the pages of Esquire, but you sure as hell didn't see it in the labor market numbers. Whereas now there are actual hard empirical problems uh, facing men. But the broader question you're asking is, and you're quite right, I say that like, when was the last crisis of femininity? That's right, never. Is because masculinity has always been somewhat more socially constructed, always more contested. But what it means, it's something deeper than that, which is that throughout history, femininity has been somewhat more associated with fertility, with raising kids, with family life and so on. And now it's been expanded. We've expanded what femininity can mean in really all kinds of exciting ways, including workplace and professional success too, without destroying the idea of femininity. Masculinity has always been a little bit more socially constructed. That's why there have been rites of passage for boys quite often and, in, and into to becoming young men, because you don't have quite the same rite of passage as fertility that women have. Uh, and so I think that, and here I'll risk sounding a bit socially conservative, the cultural task of constructing masculinity is one that is always before us. And if we neglect the task, then things will not work out well for anybody. And I fear that in the current moment, we're not taking that task seriously because the left think masculinity is toxic and the right think we are and we need the old kind of masculinity where men were real men and women knew their place and of course both of those are dangerously wrong it's part of the issue you're butting up against that and you mentioned this in the book that so many of the figureheads in industry and government are still men but it gives mm. the impression that the world is still run by men and like you said I, only three percent of venture capital goes to female founders and and so on do you, you think two percent change percent now 2%, so, okay. yeah no my, my wife my wife told me you got to up, i've got to update the book i've got i got it wrong i got to cut it like it was three percent in the book it's down to two percent I'm, I'm having to update the book in real time on that one but yes i think you're absolutely right so if you're just looking around the elite you know, and that's your worldview you're looking at the apex of society then what you continue to see is continued gender inequality in the traditional way and I've written a fair amount about this. Certainly, the US politics in particular is, is, is in much worse shape. I mean, the UK has done 
much better, say, just to talk about politics. A third of MPs now are women in the UK, which is like 5% back in the 80s. Obviously, we're on, we're on our third female prime minister. It's like the US is not doing so well on that front. We've mentioned venture capital. Even the leaders, the leaders of our companies continue to be more likely to be men, much more likely to be men than women, and so on. And so if you look around at that apex, what you continue to see is something that still looks quite traditional in terms of gender inequality. But just look down for a minute. Look at what's happening in working class communities. Look what's happening to working class men or black men in the US. And it is a very, very different picture. And so the problem is, if you're only looking at this through an elite lens, you sort of look around and say, what's he talking about? What's Reeves on about? What 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 problems are boys and men? What do you think, just relatedly, we're talking about entrepreneurship and, say, the likelihood of success in the corporate world, Um Jordan Peterson does get a mention in the book, and he got in a bit of sort of trouble for arguing. Well, he's got into lots of trouble lots of times. <laughs> yeah, which he time? argued that men, I think the phrase he uses, have pro-social characteristics that mm. make them more liable to succeed. They're more ruthless, they're more ambitious, as you say, more aggressive and more prone to take risks. Mm-hmm. Do yeah. you buy that thesis about why men are more represented at the top of business and white collar professions or is just as much of it explicable by the enormous kind of motherhood penalty that we have where women basically have to drop out of the workforce Mm. and it's very hard to get back to where you were once you've done that so i think there's two different things going on there i think that the the gender pay gap is largely a parenting pay gap and it is largely because of this difference between the amount of time that women take out of the labor market or or go part-time or whatever to care for kids compared to men that's really that's really the main cause of the gender pay gap now it's not discrimination and so i do think that asks interesting questions about how we you know we need more equality at home Uh, and we need to if if we're serious about tackling the gender pay gap the only way now to do that is to have men doing more on the home front frankly or you know to have all our kids being raised by paid child carers in like soviet style childcare arrangements which actually turns out few people really want it turns out a lot of people actually do want to raise their kids yeah i've become so a lot more left wing since having a small child yeah. <laughs> the idea of a collective childcare. Yeah. yeah but i think the, the but the second so that's what the second thing is a different thing like leadership why do we see more men in these leadership positions and you're right the jordan peterson line is men are, men are more interested in that kind of status in in that uh, particularly sort of material status but it's almost institutional status and it's all kinds of survey evidence supporting that claim that on average men are just a bit more interested in their job title rising up the ladder like this hierarchy yeah so on average does that appear to be a difference yes Uh, i think it's crazy to deny it but is the difference big enough to explain the current gaps in leadership and there the answer to my mind is clearly no it expresses the views of lots of conservatives on this. So let's take, uh, just because it's we just talked about it, the UK Parliament, right? So in 1980, 5% of, uh, of members of Parliament were women. Jordan Peterson would look at that and say, well, women aren't interested in being leaders. You know, it's in, it's, it's in their brain, it's their biology, right? Just So it's not surprising it's 5%. Well, how, in that case, why is it now 35%? um and you might say you might have looked at the FTSE 100 companies or fortune 500 companies how many were led by women in 1980 none now it's you know eight percent and so you've got to be very careful here to strike a balance between on the one hand denying any differences at all 
that aren't due to socialization, which means we have to get to 50% representation in absolutely everything to be sure that we're equal. And using biological explanations to describe what can only be structural differences. This is back to where we were before. It's like, on the one hand, no differences yeah. on the one on the left. And then people like Peterson and others saying huge differences, which explain massive disparities. And the distributions overlap so much. Like, I'm sure that you can think of women who are much more, you know, uh, interested in leadership, corporate leadership than many of the men, you know, right? So what they do is they take a difference on average, forget that the distributions overlap and frankly use it to justify sexist outcomes. And it's made much easier when they face opponents who say there are no differences at all. And until we get to 50% in everything, we live in a patriarchy. Yeah, and it's a good injunction, something you return to a few times, um, not to just look at differences and like you say, ascribe it all to sex, but equally to acknowledge that there might be some difference. And the archetypal example is so-called STEM subjects or engineering, for mm. example. There are far fewer mm. women engineers, but there should be far more. Correct. But it's not necessarily going to get to 50. I actually found this paper by a psychologist called Rong Su, who worked with James Rounds. Uh, and again, what they did was something very interesting. What they said was, let's look at the percentage of men and women in these different professions. And then let's say, what would they be if men and women were selecting into those professions based on what we know of the differences in interests of men and women, right? So it is true that on average, men are a bit more into things. Women are a bit more into people on average. And so they mapped that and they said, well, what we'd expect is uh, about 30% of engineers would be women and about 30% of nurses would be men. If we had these conditions where people were generally selecting based on their preferences. And right now, it's 15% of engineers are women and 10% of nurses are men. And so what that tells you is a couple of things. One is that we have a long way to go before we can start to feel like, okay, those numbers probably do represent genuine differences of preference. So let's, let's, let's keep going, Jordan. Let's not stop. So let's get to 30%. But it also means we might not get to 50%. Right. But that's okay. That's okay. And I don't think, and actually I had this conversation with colleagues recently about how male-dominated construction work is. And these very, and they're highly educated, very liberal feminist young women were saying, yeah, that's fine. You can have construction. And then I started going through, I said, okay, what about deep sea fishing? Yeah, you can have that too. Right. What about coal mining? Yeah, you can have that as well. And so it's, it's fine as long as we're not excluding people from those things. And as long as there's enough representation in them, such that you don't feel like a weirdo doing them, then that's the key thing. Meanwhile, these other professions like early years education, there are no men in them. And so the barriers to entry in those occupations are huge. There's a sort of parallel there, I think, as well with um, a modern definition of feminism, letting women have a choice. So you might choose to be a mother and drop out yes. of the workforce, but not having it forced on you by economic circumstances or the fact that your partner can't take a full part in family life. You know, I think that the element of choice to me seems to be the most one of the most important factors there. Yes, um, and that's I'm, the point. It's a, it was a liberation movement. You talked about education and the workplace. And that, I think, brings us on nicely to some of your um, proposed solutions. Now, for our British audience, can you explain what you mean by redshirting and hmm. how that applies to the educational context with boys and girls? Yeah, so redshirting is a, is a US term borrowed from athletics. In the US, as there was a tendency sometimes to hold people back so they'd be a year older which means it'd be bigger and meaner on the on the playing field of whatever the whatever the sport was. 
And so that's athletic redshirting. And what you do is you hold them out of competition for a year, actually, so that then when they do enter the competition, they can actually play for the whole time they're in college or high school. So then there's academic redshirting, which is much more about my kids not ready educationally, socially, and it's so that they still do, do better in terms of academics. And so I'm talking about redshirting in an academic sense. And so what that essentially just means is starting school a year later. It's something that we half did with one of our kids. We didn't think he was ready for school. He was a summer born um, child. And we ended up starting him a few months later. So we started in January rather than September. And I, you know, I really regret it. I think we just have held him out the whole year, but it was so hard. The school system was so against it. Uh, and I think he would have done much better in education if he just had that extra year to mature. And, and my proposal is that just as a default, that boys start school a year later than girls and just in terms of their age and the reason for that is we we're talking about earlier which is that they just develop more slowly and in particular in adolescence and so a 15 year old boy and a 15 year old girl are not the same in terms of their brain development and it would be better to have a 16 year old boy in a class with 15 year old girls because developmentally they'll be a similar age and again, it's one of those proposals where academics and policymakers, it's, it's how will we do this? We need to evaluate it. I agree with all that. Every single school teacher and school head teacher I say this to goes, yeah, of course. <laughs> I've been saying this for years. So the people at the front lines are like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's just do that. Do you think generally that uh, one of the things I'm struck by, and I declare an interest here, my, my own daughter's just started school. And whenever mm. I talk to kind of foreign friends, they're always amazed that we start school at four in mm. the UK and do you have a general view about the, the starting age of school and when it when is best for each you think sort of six seven it's it's so interesting that you mentioned that because of course I do think it's too early in the UK and it's one of the reasons why we, we really wanted to actually start our own kid a little bit later but it, it depends what you do before that we have to bear in mind is a lot of those other countries particularly if they're from you know, I can say Europe now I guess yeah. uh, whereas actually they have very good pre-k classes there's very high quality early years education so they say we don't start school until later but it's not like they don't start education until later so they're very very different systems I think as a general proposition all the evidence is that there's not such a big hurry uh don't have to rush into it and and what's interesting is that people say well like i'm crazy for suggesting boys start school a year later but like, but everyone starts school a year later in switzerland and by the way it varies by u.s state as well so it's entirely arbitrary anyway really in terms of when kids start school and i think in general yeah in the uk there's a bit of a push to start them too early and I do think that's particularly hard for boys who are struggling a bit, not only at the beginning, but also, as I've said, a little bit, a little bit later on in, you know, the teenage, by the time we get to secondary school, uh, GCSEs and A-levels, that's when, then that's when actually there are even bigger disadvantage. Yeah, we've, and we've mentioned, um, moving on to the sort of employment, mm -hmm. you know, post-education, because we also, these inequalities you talk about manifest themselves later on as well, um, in terms of both just qualifications across the board and the particular sectors that people decide to go into and you've kind of got your own acronym which is HEAL um, mm. and what do you mean by HEAL it's but it's broadly speaking more of the kind of empathetic sort of human-based professions which tended to be done by women mm. yes yeah, so it's like the opposite of STEM so STEM people a lot of people heard of that science technology engineering and math so more about the things, more technical. And we've had big pushes to get women into STEM, pretty successful on, in most cases. Uh, HEAL are health, education, administration, and literacy 
jobs and skills. And so they are more on the people oriented side. And you're quite right that those have very often historically been more female oriented, but the key point is that they are becoming more so. So whereas traditionally male professions, particularly the higher status ones are progressively more equal. I mean, medicine and law now are at parity, huge increases in number of women scientists and so on. So good, good progress there. Meanwhile, the heel professions are becoming more female. So just to take teaching, for example, that's becoming more female over time. There's been a slight increase in number of male nurses, but very, very slow. And areas like psychology and counseling are you're seeing fewer and fewer men in those professions, social work, swinging more female. And so actually those professions are becoming more female. And the reason why that matters is not only because that's where a lot of the jobs are coming from and we're growing those sectors. And therefore, if men want employment opportunities, they're going to have to look there, but also because the people using those services are very often at least 50-50 male-female, and in some cases more male than female. And yet we have fewer and fewer male providers. And so just in terms of providing a better service, you know, just think about something like mental health care, right? whether it's in an institution or outside of an institution, to not have men providing mental health care when you're providing that care to boys and men is a huge problem. I used to say in the book myself that when I went into therapy, I very definitely did better with a male therapist. <laughs> Um, but you're going to have to work harder and harder to find one now. And so I think actually just from the point of view of social welfare, we need more men in those professions. How would you propose to change that trend? I mean, hmm. you mentioned before there are economic and cultural factors. And one is that perhaps on balance, those professions tend to pay a bit less. I'm slightly speculating here, but also yeah. that they're seen as kind of inherently feminine to be, to be caring and empathetic. And yeah. that's quite a, difficult thing to overcome through public policy alone perhaps yeah so there's a bunch of things you have to do there so i think one problem is that as a profession becomes very strongly gendered it does get harder for people from the other gender to go into it we like we know that from things like getting helping women into engineering and so i think it's very important not to get to a tipping point where it is seen as so strongly either male or, or female uh so that's a vicious circle, of course, because unless we get more men in them, they're not seen as male friendly. And that's an area where, sure, we should be careful about how those jobs are described and marketed and so on, too. But if there's a strong case for throwing some money at this. There's been really a lot of success from scholarships, for example, to encourage women into traditionally male professions. We should do the same and give scholarships to men to go into traditionally female Professions, obviously, that's not without some controversy, but I think given the scale of the challenge, we should absolutely be incentivizing more men to go into those professions. We should pay them better anyway, frankly. And so if that does help with the cause, then then great. Um, but I do think that it's a, a moment where you can use public policy to drive social change and vice versa. You've got to try and right now we have a vicious circle. And so you need to break that and try and turn it into a virtuous circle, more men going in. So it seems more male. So more men go in, et cetera. But it will take some interventions to try and change this current cycle we're, we're stuck in. And it's also important to, to note that a lot of these professions were not seen as particularly gendered before. And yeah. you can see how how professions change. Like when was the last time you heard someone say female doctor? but you hear male nurse a lot or female lawyer. I mean, those terms seem crazy in a world where it's 50-50. And so it just shows you that we can change these things. And of course, social work used to be pretty gender neutral, but it's not anymore. Psychology used to be quite balanced. It's not anymore. And so occupations can become more or less gendered over time. And those professions and teaching, 
think about you know uh, secondary school teachers that's yeah. becoming yeah. increasingly gender but it didn't used to be always used to be your master right so correct i mean like uh, actually if you if i think back to my own secondary school uh like a secondary school at least half the teachers were male but the last time i actually looked at my old secondary school school website now and it looks like it's about 30 percent male and falling and so even just in my lifetime you, you've seen teaching as a profession become feminized and that strikes me as a move in completely the wrong direction yeah i wonder if you i don't know if you know the answer to this but it strikes me at least from not to out myself as a posho here but uh from my own experience there's a lot more that's male too late teachers. i could t i mean i yeah. think we can all hear we can all hear the accent don't yeah, i think yeah. that shit <laughs> when you um my school for example i think the vast the majority of the staff were men i think that was one mm. of the most striking things all my form tutors for my entire school career were men and, and yeah, it was it was quite striking, and it was very academic and very kind of a hot house. And I wonder if that might be. I, I don't know how much that affects outcomes for boys. I and mean, is there well, I think solid a, evidence there? On well, there is evidence that male teachers help boys. Yeah. Uh, as to what, as to why they do, that's a bit harder to know. So it's a bit of a black box. You can't necessarily. Is it role model? Is it that they have a different attitude, etc.? But uh, that's that's was my experience too. I actually think it's something in a way to go back to almost where we started about this question of identity. I think if you have male teachers who clearly are educated, who love education, who think education is important, then what it means is that the idea of, of masculine educational performance, this is like dead poet society type thing, right? They're, they're like actually there's nothing intrinsically unmasculine about learning, about poetry, about books, about writing, about good, be, about good grades, etc. And I think that the very best signal you can send about that is to have male teachers. I think if all the teachers are female and all the girls are doing much better in school, then the danger is that the very idea of being into education and doing well at education it starts to itself be seen as feminine. Yeah. And that's that way lies disaster. Because what you're then signaling to boys is this is something for girls and women, not something for you. And so I do think the ethos of the school and the, the ethos of educational success cannot be either masculine or feminine. It has to be both. Yeah. I mean, Richard, there's so much, so much we could get into here. It's a it's sort of boundlessly fascinating topic. I just want to finish very quickly by bringing it back here to, to the UK. I mean, your book is as I said, it's mainly about America. But do you think this is something that is on policymakers or policy wonks horizon here in the UK? I mean, I work in a think tank. We do lots of policy reports. And I've, I've never seen a report on this from any British think tank. Well, there, there was a report from a higher education policy institute led by Nicholas Hillman. Uh, uh, they've done some work in this space and he's written very interestingly I apologise to Nick, sorry <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I quote him and I think it's very important work and Mary Kernock Kirk and others have been pushing on this so there's a little bit um, but it hasn't so I would say there's growing awareness of these problems and Nick is one of the people that's been willing to go out and talk about it it hasn't yet made its way into policy or policy making uh, there, there are no educational initiatives in the UK, for example, to help boys in school. None. Uh, that's a result of a freedom of information request um, that was actually brought by a men's rights group. But it, the, 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 the data is clear is that there's a, quite a lot of programs to help women and girls, which, again, I'm in favor of. But there are the current number of initiatives to help boys and men in the UK education system is officially zero. Right. I, so clearly it hasn't made it onto the agenda of policymakers yet. 
but I have a, a sense that it's going to. I have a sense that for a while at least people saw the trends, maybe they didn't know quite how bad they were and they sort of kind of thought it will, this will work itself out and we've been fighting for girls and women for so long. It's, I think now enough time has passed and these problems are, if anything, in many cases getting worse as we've discussed here. I, I think that policymakers are paying attention. And frankly, to the extent that my book is a data point, I've been pleasantly surprised by the reception of people across the political spectrum saying, yeah, there's something here. Yeah. There is, there's a, there's a here, here. And obviously that's the first step. And I also am pleased with the fact that people are just being willing to have the conversation. I think we're past the point now where even having this conversation marks you out as a lunatic alt-right men's rights nutter who's going to go to the House of Commons and throw condoms or whatever. Right. Yeah. Instead, like, and I, I, kind exactly. Of right. I, I, and that's crucial to this project as part yeah. of my project is it's crucial to create spaces in which you can have this conversation without immediately being dismissed as fringe. Yeah, and I, I, and my sense is that that is happening, and now we can start talking about policy. I think you can tell when you're reading it that you used to be a Lib Dem because you're equally scathing about the left and the right. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> that's that's my, that's my happy dimorphism place. Dimorphism of the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> no. um, well, Richard, I can only say I hope that this um, podcast contributes to getting this further up the agenda. I would stress, as Richard does in the book repeatedly, that this really isn't about pushing back on progress for women and girls or any of the issues facing them, but it's about you can walk and chew gum at the same time um Rich's book of boys and men <laughs> is out now in fact it's been out for about a week in the uk mm -hmm. so do give it a read it's uh it's a very enlightening it's full of great quotes and fascinating stats so yeah do give it a listen thank you as ever for listening and do tune in next week for another episode of the capex podcast Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We wanna bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're gonna equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change.